you are listening to Demise of the Podcast with Pat Dataway, my podcast where I discuss writing specifically today, Randy Hendricks' writing, as we read his short story, A White Shirt. Now, Randy Hendricks passed away, I believe in March of this year, maybe April. I know that uh, we were not able to, well, I say we, I wasn't there, but... uh, There was not a local memorial for him until the past weekend. And my friend Chris texted me and said he was there and that he saw several of my former classmates there. When I started undergrad in 2010, Randy Hendricks was the dean of my college's English department. And I think at one point he ended up Moving upward past that, I don't. I don't think so. But uh, he was the chair at one point, and then became the dean. And he didn't really teach very many classes when I was in undergrad and grad school, so I never got to take him. However, I was assigned two of his short stories by my first English professor, and so he came. Uh, to speak to our class and another English class, we went into an auditorium and he showed us a video of um, his father-in-law's story about the stove. The cover of the 12th year has that stove or something like it. And it's interesting because he wrote something that's a very good short story based on someone else's story and the video that he showed us was a news broadcast based on his father-in-law's story as well. And he was obviously incredibly intelligent, and I never got to take one of his classes, and I only got to see him that one time, at least in a, a speaking arrangement. I saw him around campus now and then. I, I walked past his office quite a few times, but I always regretted not being able to take a course with him, and unfortunately he had to go back to work teaching because he had cancer and had to pay for his treatment. This is all through Chris. I don't know how much of this has been diluted by the grapevine and whatnot. But it, it got me thinking. And it got me thinking today because... Aside from the fact that I wanted to cover a white shirt on here, not only because of Randy and his passing, but because it was actually one of the short stories that I had listed for my oral exam last year, but I didn't cover it on the podcast, which I should have. I was driving around town today. My wife's new hobby is to have me drive her all around so sometimes we end up in small towns in the county and today we ended up in Claiborne County Alabama which freaked her out because the map on her GPS disappeared once we got past Ranburn but on the way there my wife used to work in student housing so she wanted to see if there was chaos at some of the the student apartments with turn happening due to the recent graduation and everything. But we drove around the campus and I looked at 
the Coliseum or the stadium rather. And I said to my wife, I wish I could find something in my life that I love as much as this school, as as much as college, really. Because all I'm really, it's kind of sad. Every time I drive through campus, I see people who are younger than me, and every year they look younger and younger. And it's one of those instances where I truly cannot go back. You know, I thought when I went to grad school that I was going to kind of get back into the feel of undergrad, but no, all it was was like a a very small tease and a lot more debt for me. Hopefully Papa Biden's plan for canceling student debt will come through because then I, I won't owe that much more, more money, but I was also reminded passing by billboards for both my school and the school that I taught at how parasitic colleges are now. They've always been businesses, I suppose, but they advertise all over the same way that the local pressure washer guy advertises on billboards and the little signs that you stick in someone's yard. And what's funny is I participated in that, both in the perpetuation that this education is going to do something great for you because I taught, and then I gave money for what, nine years in total? Grad school took me longer because of the pandemic, unfortunately. And I I spent five years in undergrad, which is very common these days. My wife is actually a student at the school that I graduated from right now. She's getting a degree in political science because she wants to go to law school. But she's not really getting that same experience because she's doing all of her classes online. And she also remarked to me today that I was part of probably the last generation of college students that had the true blue college experience because now everything is on your phone. There are a lot more students taking online classes. And, you know, whenever I needed to do, to do something for school, a lot of times I had to go to campus to get it accomplished. You don't really have to do that anymore. I didn't get an iPhone until 2013. Most people did not have smartphones even back then. So social media was still kind of relegated to your laptop, your PC, your MacBook, whatever. It wasn't as prevalent as it is now. It was still kind of a novelty. But I think part of what draws me to school is it was a time when I still had hope for the future and I had ignorance as well. I didn't know I would be where I am now. And ironically, I'm technically back in school because I'm taking a course for my current job to help me make more money, which you would think that having a master's degree would demand a higher salary, but you know, they don't give a shit. 
teaching certainly didn't pay me more than I'm making now in my current role. And Randy, a guy who was brilliant in many different ways, I mean, other than being a great writer, he was also one of the world's leading scholars on Robert uh, Penn Warren. Am I getting his name wrong? It's Robert Penn Warren, isn't it? But the sad truth about our research in the world of being an English major, an English scholar, a literature scholar, however you want to call it, our work doesn't really amount to much. And I, I know that that probably pisses some of you English majors off, some of you English professors off if you're listening. But in the grand scheme of what we do compared to even other, you know, things like science in the same field, the, the same field of academia, um, it, it doesn't really amount to much as compared to science research or even math. Do people do math research? I know they write papers on math, but uh, it seems kind of arbitrary to me but that's why you know I'm sitting here recording a podcast and not um, working on my dissertation I guess but the world has changed significantly since we had a giant like Randy Hendricks in the world because that's what he was to me and other students he was a giant he was a man that we aspired to be like one day a guy who seemed to have it all together and was able to make a career out of doing what we love to do, and that's reading and writing. So it, he's he's a dying breed, in all honesty. He was part of a world that is slowly dying before us. And when I was admitted to grad school, a lot of us still had some hope that we would be able to make a career out of this. And, you know, I'm not saying that I'll never go back to teaching. I'm not saying that I may never go get a PhD, but it definitely feels like it would be a waste of time right now, especially with the experience that I had with the Dean of the arts department at my school telling me that he wanted me to teach an automated course that literally required none of my input. And that's where a lot of learning is going these days. And writing, in general, is being threatened by the concept of AI. You know, you can train AI to write a novel. You can train AI to do research for you. And... In the most unexpected place, I listened to Chasing Tone, the guitar podcast, and Robert, Robert, Brian Wampler is constantly using ChatGPT on that show to search for things. He says it's more reliable than Google now. And just half an hour ago, I was making art, AI art, for my TikTok on Dolly just for the sake of making content. You know, I could have either gone out and shot more uh, photos on my 3DS, or I could have contacted an artist 
to do what I, I wanted, but instead I was able to do it in a matter of five minutes to get 16 images. And there are people who have already lost their jobs to AI. I know that to be a fact because I've heard about it and, and it was even mentioned on chasing tone very recently. Richard Oliver said that he knows a man in his field in design that was able to get rid of three salaries just from using AI instead. And I'm not actually all that worried about it. Although I'm pretty sure my job right now, I know it can be outsourced because I've already had a similar job be outsourced before. That was in 2021 with my company that I used to work for opened a branch in India and lied to us for two years saying, Oh, we're not outsourcing your jobs. We're not going to lay you off. This is just so we can stop using BPO. A lot of us knew that was bullshit and it's, it's going to get to the point where even those people in, in India and people overseas, they're going to lose their jobs too through AI if it's used the way that it's being used now on a, a larger scale at least. And, you know, to me, true learning requires critical thought and analysis. And if you know anything about um, pedagogy of the oppressed, you know that the banking method of learning does not work nearly as well as the problem-posing method. And that is having a conversation with your students. You should be learning alongside your students. That was my favorite part of teaching, was being in that classroom and digging in with my students. They... I mean, at times it was like pushing a giant boulder uphill. But once you could get those students talking and they start understanding you, oh my God, that feeling. It was like I was back in undergrad. I felt more at home teaching that one semester than I did the entire time I was in grad school. Academia is changing and in 2019 when enrollment was down for the school that I attended and the school that Randy taught at, the um, positions that were eliminated were not filled afterward. Uh, They have since eliminated even more positions and all of the professors that were like gods when I was an undergrads, undergrad rather, they left. They either retired or went to other schools. My uh, autobiography professor, Emily Hipchin, is now teaching at Brown. And she was of the age that she could have retired if she wanted to. But her, no one was hired to fill her role. The former interim president, um, Michael Crafton, again, a brilliant man. He and his wife left and 
their roles were not filled. The English department is getting smaller and smaller almost by the year. And, you know, there was a time when it was something that you could look forward to almost. It was almost inevitable. If you were here long enough, you could probably get a job in some capacity. Because a lot of our teachers, especially in English 1000 through 2000 courses, they were former students of our college. And, man, I would love to teach at my former school, even with all the bullshit I know goes on there, just to be there. Because I keep thinking, at least once a year, I think I should take a day off from school. Get up at the same time. I mean, I should take a day off from work and get up at the same time, get my old backpack out and go to campus and just walk around for a while, go into the old buildings, sit in the library. It almost brings tears to my eyes to think about going back to that library, especially on an, on an, uh, early in the morning on an overcast day. And the amount of time I spent studying and reading in that library on the third floor, I would get so excited near the end of the semester because I would have research papers to do and I would go to the library and I would get books from my secondary sources. It would drive some of my English professors up the wall because they would always insist that you use sources from the last 20 years and some of the sources I I was getting was some of them are even older than the professors, you know, but I loved that so fucking much and it it it's there i could still go over there and walk around look at the old haunts but the the saying you can't go home you can never really go home that's that's still true because it's changing every year and one day it may not even resemble the school that I went to. And, man, that will be a fucking sad day for me. I would like to read more than one story, but I don't know how long reading a white shirt will take. It's not a very long, short story, but it's one that really resonated with me. And the stove is... A good bit longer, so I might do that next week. He wished he was Daryl Young, the boy who had killed Buddy. Everyone in the church, including his mother, was looking at Daryl Young as he walked down the center of the church to look at Buddy in his casket. His mother whispered to his aunt, There's Daryl Young. And his aunt looked and said, Bless his heart. It was like being in the movies, The only people who weren't looking at Daryl Young were Buddy's mama and daddy. It had been like the movies when his mama told him three days ago that Buddy had been killed. Like the movies because he hadn't realized before that people Buddy's age might really die. 
They did in the movies, but not in real life. Because they were young. In the movies, sometimes young people died to punish the wicked or because they were so good. But only old people and people you didn't know died in real life. Or some young people died in the Bible so Jesus could resurrect them again. But his mama said Buddy was dead because Daryl Young had hit him with his motorcycle and knocked him off his bicycle and had hit his head on the pavement. And later, he heard his mother tell his aunt on the phone that his father had said there was still blood on the road and a lot of people would have to pass the spot on the way to church. I think about this occasionally because when I was in high school, there were students who died for various reasons, not many, granted. But my senior year, there was a young football player. I never met him, never even saw him. And his death affected people that I knew, and I saw it firsthand. And his girlfriend was my age, and she was there when he accidentally shot himself in the stomach. And he died in her arms. And I remember that week going to lunch and standing behind her in the lunchroom. And I don't know what how I looked at her because... You know, I can't see myself, but I know how she looked back at me. And it was almost as if she was trying to not come across as someone who had just witnessed their boyfriend die. Um, because she didn't appear sad, but there was something kind of artificial about the way she looked at me. But then someone that I did used to know died that year. Um... Her name was Molly, and I knew her in junior high school, and her father used to be the mayor. And she left after he became the mayor and went to private school. She came back during our senior year. And she died because she fell down the stairs of her basement and she gave birth to her two twin babies and they of course died too but her mother found her down there later and I remember that her father did not want the school to have any sort of memorial for her the principal asked can we you know, have something for the students on senior day and in memoriam of some kind, and he also declined that. He didn't want anything to do with the school anymore. And the thing is, is that um, she got knocked up by this doofus who was a junior, and I he was this tall guy. I, I'm surprised that he was able to make it through life to the point that he did because he was so dumb. But I always felt, for one thing, if she had not come back, she wouldn't have met him. She wouldn't have had gotten pregnant and she might still be alive today. And maybe if her parents were at home with her, 
you know, she might also still be alive today. And later on, we lost other classmates, but we'd all lost touch with them at that point. My wife has decided to uh, regale us with her uh, television noises from the other room. Everybody liked Buddy, who was four years older than he was. And everybody liked Daryl Young, who was two years older than Buddy. Only they said now they knew all along it was a bad idea and the other boys that had had them to get those motorcycles. And some, like his mother, said they didn't know what a boy's youngest buddy was doing out on the road on a bicycle. Which was all he wanted to do. Get out on the road on his bicycle. He knew he could ride it better if he could just get it out on the pavement. Motorcycles scared him because they were heavy. But they all felt really bad for Buddy's mama and daddy, even though he had let him get out on the road. They seemed to feel even worse for Dale Young, even though he had the motorcycle and rode it too fast. He always thought about it and talked about Daryl Young by both his names, never just Daryl. That kind of reminds me of the time when I was probably 19 and I ran over this woman's cat. And when I got out, everyone was pissed at me, of course. Now, little did I know that I didn't have any legal obligation to stop and, you know, be nice and check on the cat and the owner who was losing her shit. Um, but after everyone kind of cooled down, this woman who was outside, you know, she was, she kept asking me, are you okay? Are you okay? And I didn't understand why she was asking me if I was okay. And she said, you know, what the first time I ever ran over an animal, I, I was so distraught because I really broke that person's heart. And it is a traumatic thing, you know, when one of the reasons why they don't allow um, anyone to die um, by being shot um, in terms of execution, it's not being court-martialed, but uh, death by firing squad, uh, because it's actually a traumatic experience for the person on the other end of the gun. Um so, just something to think about. This was the second funeral he remembered. The first one was Annabelle Clemmers, who had been known because she'd babysat for him one summer. She died because she was fat. Being fat was like being old. So in real life, fat people and old people and people you didn't know died. But now young people die too, and you knew them. But he remembered about Annabelle's funeral was eating baked beans with bacon and three people had sung Just a Rose Will Do, which his mama and aunt said was just the right song for a funeral. And his father had been one of the Paul Bears, that's spelled Paul as in Paul McCartney, and then Bears as in Adrian Ballou, which was the people who carried the dead person. He knew Paul was in the Bible, one of the important ones, just a little under Jesus, but he didn't understand how carrying a dead person made you a Paul Bear. Maybe because bears were strong. <laughs> they ate at Buddy's funeral too. 
at Buddy's house yesterday, but he couldn't find the beans with bacon in them. And then his mama had called him to her, and when he got up to her chair, she put an arm around him, which was something she didn't normally do. She was talking to Buddy's mama, and Buddy's mama was smiling at him, and his mama said, Would you like to be an honorary Paul Bear? It's actually spelled honorary. And he said no, but his mama hadn't heard him because she was telling Buddy's mama that he didn't have a white shirt, but reckoned they could get him one by tomorrow. And then he said no again, and his mama explained to Buddy's mama that he was just real upset. And then he was just walking away again. He couldn't help it. He just busted out crying. It's interesting the way that Brandy wrote this. Because he's writing from the third person's POV. But he's doing it as if he is also um, the protagonist. Who is, you know, could be younger than 12. I don't know. Could be younger than 10. But obviously small town. He's a young guy. And he's now witnessed two people that he, he, well, one person that he used to know who was a young kid get run over by a motorcycle and almost like experienced secondhand trauma from Daryl Young's trauma. When the funeral started, Donnie Love and Alan Connor and some others all came in before the casket and all of them wearing white shirts and sat on the front row. And Donnie Love was crying really loud, but the others just drooped their heads his mama looked down at him as if to tell him that's what honorary Paul Bears do, and he could have been one. And he was sorry he hadn't been, but he didn't have a white shirt. Then the regular men, Paul Bears, carried Buddy's casket in, and the men wearing suits from the funeral home opened it, but he couldn't see Buddy plain. And then the preacher told about how Buddy was saved during vacation Bible school right outside the church there two years ago and how happy it made him to know Buddy was gone to glory. Um, just briefly, I went to buy, uh, vacation Bible school a few times, and I don't remember actually learning much about the Bible. Uh, it was just kind of a fun thing to do with other kids during the summer. Uh, I don't know that anyone would have wanted to have been saved or baptized during that period because we were too busy dancing and fooling around. Um, fooling around in the, the sense that children are playing uh, and goofing off, not fooling around in the other sense, you bunch of fucking perverts. <laughs> For no man knows the hour. And he knew the preacher had talked like that before, but now it was like he was talking to him. And it had all something to do with Buddy, but he didn't know what exactly. Then it, it was time for them all to get up one row at a time and walk by Buddy's casket the way they'd walk by Annabelle's. And that was when he saw Daryl Young going up and wished he was him. Then it was their turn, and he followed his mother and his aunt. But when it came his turn to look at Buddy... He wouldn't do it because he fell all over again like crying. And he looked at all the boys in their white shirts and especially at Donnie Love. And he didn't want to be one of them. 
And then they walked by Daryl Young on the way back to their seat, and Daryl Young had tears going down both cheeks, and he didn't want to be him. He didn't want to be here anymore at all. He wanted to be back at home, outside playing with the soldiers in the dirt bank next to their driveway. But first, they all had to go outside and wait while Buddy's family got seated under the tent where the grave was, and then the preacher said some more words, and they could leave. His mama told him that if he would walk straight behind her and stay off the road, he didn't have to hold her hand, so he did that. At his daddy's store, his mama got a Pepsi out of the drink cooler, but for the first time ever, he didn't want one. His mama told his daddy again that he ought to have closed the store for the funeral, and he told her again he didn't see what good it would have done. While they were talking, he went out to the front door and over the gas pump island. This was where he knew Buddy. For Buddy came here every day to put air in his bicycle tires, and sometimes he'd come with an inner tube that needed patching. And Buddy would sit and patch it while he talked to him. And two or three times, some days, Daryl Young would come here and pump 50 cents worth of gas into his motorcycle. And he talked to him too. And Daryl Young would give him the quarters to take inside to his daddy and then ride off again. Because all Daryl Young and Buddy ever did was ride up and ride off again. He picked up the air hose and held the pen in with his thumb and let the air blow hard on his face until his mama stuck her head out the door and told him to stop before he took his breath away. He looked at the sky. He was clear with some high white puffy clouds and he thought about God up there sitting on his throne and then he thought about Buddy too and wondered where he'd be sitting up there. Annabelle would be sitting on the porch. She always sat on the porch at the top of the steps when she was his babysitter. He wondered if there were bicycles and motorcycles in heaven that just ran right through each other. He saw Annabelle sitting on the porch watching Buddy ride by on his bicycle wearing church clothes, dark pants, and shoes, and a white shirt. And once again, without knowing, he was going to... He bust out crying. This is a really good example of American literary fiction because it has that southern bent to it. I think a lot of the best American literature has been based in the South. You know, thank you, Flannery O'Connor and Edgar Allan Poe. It sounds like there's a party in the room next to me, but it's not. It's my wife watching Shameless. And I feel like being an asshole and yelling at her to turn it down, but then I would be in a pickle later on when I finish the podcast. So I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to look angrily at the wall and then pretend like I didn't hear anything at all when I go out to see her again. And maybe I'll eat some pound cake, even though I shouldn't, and watch The Invention of Lying. Anyway... The, the thing about this is that it deals with not only childhood innocence being somewhat lost, it's not a true end of innocence story, but the realization that, for one thing, everyone's going to die one day, and not just old people. 
And also thinking about, you know, you'll never see that person again, but there's hope because you're thinking, well, there must be a heaven. And if heaven exists, then Buddy must be up there. And if so, what could he be doing? And what's interesting to think about is that I guess he imagines that his former babysitter would still be fat, for one thing, and that she would still prefer just sitting around on the pouch. He's going to go sit on Snooky's pouch. But I always wonder, when we get up there, if heaven exists... Are we going to be as we were, or are we going to be the ideal version of ourselves? Because my ideal version of myself is about 40 pounds lighter, and maybe about 2 inches taller. You know, I'm not ashamed of being 5'8", but the thing is, is that my driver's license says that I'm 5'10", because... When I got my learner's permit, I thought I was 5'10", but I had mismeasured myself. And I didn't find out I was 5'8", until I was um, in my 20s. So maybe I was 5'10", and I shrunk. But what's more than likely to have happened is that I just didn't measure myself correctly, or whoever was in charge of measuring me didn't do it correctly. But I wonder about things like, do we eat and drink in heaven? Can we eat as much as we want in heaven? Are there going to be things that are better than eating? Are there going to be things better than sex? Because some people think that sex is the best thing in the world. Before I go, I'll of course ramble a little bit more. But I wanted to tell you that if you'd like to support the podcast, you may do so by listening to more of the podcast, telling your friends about the fucking podcast, sharing the link on social media. Get on Reddit and say, Patrick Attaway is the best podcaster of all time. Tell people, you need to listen to this man. But uh, financially, if you would like to support the podcast, you can go to Amazon and buy my books. Just search Patrick Attaway. I've got novels, poetry, and a new short story collection called Angry Bluebird. And I'm going to have a novella collection out at some point this year called uh, Staring at Nirvana. And it is going to include the latest Ken Price episode of Demise of the Podcast, Ken Price 2015. If you'd like to read that, it will have the Nero series not only the series that I read on here, but the previous series that used to be in toxic literature, etc. Because toxic literature and disease of ambition are long, no longer in print. So if you downloaded a copy or you have a, a paperback copy, uh, you may want to get me to sign it because it might be worth $5 one day. The thing about me writing lately is that I don't have a whole lot of time to do it because aside from having a full-time job I'm currently studying for kind of another position where I'll make more money and have a lot more job opportunities and I'm 
paying for it in monthly installments, which is a lot of fun. So I'm not technically in debt, but I, I kind of am. And I am basically learning Latin and Greek at the same time, so that's fun. But aside from that, I have ideas for stories. I have ideas for novels, but I'm not really following through on them right now because, for one thing, I know that if I write another novel, it's going to have to be a fucking great idea. Uh, at this point, I don't... I, I've said it before. I don't want to be known as a pro prolific author. And the thing is, is that um, I'm very proud of Greenskin. I'm proud of all my novels, but I'm very proud of Greenskin. I think it's a, a, a good little novel. It accomplished everything I wanted it to, and, um, you know, the next thing that I do has to be different. It has to be different than anything I've done before. And the thing about writing is, or being creative at all, because this applies to music as well, there's always that small inkling of self-doubt, and it creeps back and forth. But the thing is, is that anyone who read Greenskin, and I'm really only talking about one person because only one person read it and didn't like it, to my knowledge. Um, anyone who read that and also read the essays that I wrote in regards to Greenskin before its publication... To read that novel and be surprised that, for one thing, there was a lot of talk about sexuality, uh, the fact that the protagonist is a sex addict, etc. And being surprised by that. You know, when I was in grade school, we had a word for someone like that, but you're not supposed to say that word anymore because it's not considered politically correct uh, and it offends people it doesn't offend the people who might be affected in that way because they're not aware but it's not a nice word to say but it's the word that comes to mind and when I think about writing another novel it's sort of like when I first started putting out my music and I, I got compliments but I got a lot of criticism too I've always gotten criticism on my music and the thing is is that I actually did pay attention to even the assholes and sometimes the assholes would have very valid criticism but you know we're all kind of in doubt that we're good at this. You know, I think that there's a high possibility that when I die, no one will read my, my work ever again. No one will listen to my music ever again because there won't be someone championing it. That's been me this whole time. And, you know, this is another great segue from talking about Randy Hendricks. This man was not a terribly well-known author during his lifetime. But 
I read one of his short stories on a podcast and, you know, maybe a few of you will take interest in, in his writing and track down a copy of the, the 12th year, which by the way, I have a hardback signed copy, not signed for me, signed for some guy named Ron who, uh, gave it away. And now it's in my position. And Ron, if you're out there, if you're listening, you're not getting your book back, buddy. But there's a high probability that I might suck at writing. No matter how much time I've spent doing it, no matter what I think of my writing, because I I enjoy doing it, I enjoy what I do, you have to write for yourself. Just like you have to create music and art for yourself. Because if you don't like it, no one else will. But there's a, a, a possibility that I am suffering from some form of Dunning-Kruger and it's all gibberish. And people who are giving me good reviews are just being nice. So there's always a possibility that you suck, but here's the thing. There are people who are amazing at what they do. There's always someone out there who thinks that that person sucks. My favorite author is Brett Easton Ellis. There are people who think that Brett Easton Ellis is a terrible author. And let me tell you something about these newer generation kids who are into books and reading and they glamorize people like Donna Tart. <laughs> Get on TikTok sometime and just search for Brett Easton Ellis. Most of the videos are either talking about how disgusted they were by American Psycho or Donna Tart basing a character on him in her terrible novel, A Secret History. I tried reading that novel, and it's bad. It's just bad. And the character that's allegedly based on him is poorly written. All I gotta say, baby cakes... But he's my favorite author, and he's reviled by a lot of people. And he's he said in interviews, I've never gotten good reviews. I've always gotten bad reviews. But he's a millionaire, and I think he's brilliant. He's the reason why I went to school to study literature. And Bukowski, another great example. There are people who hate Bukowski, who think he, he, he always sucked. By the way... I don't get along with people who think Bukowski sucked. People who think that he was bad, that fans of his are deluding themselves. Fuck you. Do yourself a favor. Go find a short dock and take a long walk right into the fucking ocean. I hope a shark comes and nibbles at your toes. And I hope you survive. But I hope it's painful. I hope salt water gets in your lungs. I hope your toes hurt and sting from the salt water and the shark nibbling at them. Fuck you. Fuck you. Okay? What's really funny to think about is that someone who knew Randy is listening to this and is scratching their heads as to why this guy is talking about him and then telling people to go let sharks bite their toes off. Yeah, some people just don't get humor, I guess. Or 
you know, sarcasm or irony or um, being facetious or um, jerking off. Some people don't understand it. I am who I am. And I have a crude sense of humor at times. So next week, we're going to be reading The Stove. You can't haul that stove by Randy Hendricks. And maybe I won't talk so much about myself and talk more about stoves. So this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the podcast. Happy reading, happy writing. Go grow a pair and stop fucking wasting your time reading literature that you don't like just to give it bad reviews to make yourself feel better and to tell the world that you basically like the smell of your own farts. Bye.